Sporty. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand, author, historian, comedian, podcaster and co-presenter of the Travel Podcast that doesn't actually go anywhere. That's your place or mine with the wonderful Sean Keevney. We've got Izzy Lawrence on the Big Travel Podcast. Izzy and I talk Britain's most fixable landmarks, the British Museum, jiu-jitsu fighting suffragettes, decolonising history, dinosaurs, earthworms, the slave trade, Charles Darwin, Bovril, flying solo to Australia. Australia, age six, the Moroccan side of her family, and so much more. You've got a new book coming out in January, have you? Yes, that is Blackbeard's Treasure. This this year, right? Do I call you Chessie, by the way? Or do no, I call I'm just you Lisa. Li- Lisa? Well, actually, cool. no, okay. people do. Yeah, it depends. depends I, know, well, I, I saw on your thing, so I, I thought of you as Lisa, and then I saw on your Facebook facebook profile thing chessie and i thought oh should i call her chessie and i was like i don't lisa i'll call you lisa it depends what ear you know me from um if a lot Uh, of people from talk sports still know me as chessie and childhood friends as well but yeah no lisa yeah okay lisa Lisa, 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 there we go um yeah so i've got blackbeard's treasure coming out in january but this year i've had six book deadlines so i'm on my final one uh so i am about a third of the way into the story it's very good it's very exciting but i want to curl up in a ball and my characters keep making things overly complicated when they don't need to i keep trying to rein them in they just go off in their own and get all upset about stuff which doesn't matter to the plot so i have to rein them in a bit yeah characters are like that they've got a mind of their own haven't they they've it's so annoying and it's particularly because i do historic fiction so things have to happen when they happen and if your characters are all over the place doing their own thing, it's just a, ugh. <laughs> it's just, it's not, you need to get this done by this date. Otherwise, the, when the thing happens, you won't be ready for the next bit. And it's silly not just people. writing a story, is it? You've got to be accurate, I'm guessing. So you have to do a hell of a lot of research. Yeah. Yes, but it's amazing what you can actually leave out if you don't know. <laughs> that is the other thing. You can, you can just go fill it. You don't have to know exactly what type of cuffs they had uh, in that era and what was in fashion. You can just say, he was wearing breeches. You don't need to say specifically where they buttoned or whether his socks were on the outside or the inside of the breeches. So, you know, 
it's that sort of stuff you can your, get away with not knowing. Your work is very sort of rooted. You know, we're talking about a travel podcast, and you do have your own travel podcast for the BBC. Yes, that's um, very true. But we go nowhere. You go so nowhere, that's your, exactly. I'm your place or mine. <laughs> <laughs> your place or mine. And it, um, it stars Sean Keefney, and I basically bully him and get the guests to, and fact check the guests, actually. I do bully the guests quite a lot as well, because they, they come a, along and think they know where they're trying to sort of tempt Sean too and actually they don't know any of the facts so I have to correct them is he really uh, grumpy in real life and doesn't travel at all I don't believe that he's, he he's is, probably my favorite presenter I'd say he ever. is he is the sweetest loveliest uh people pleasing hypocrite you'll ever meet because <laughs> uh, the thing is like you know he's sort of he he does he's the thing he won't go to any of these places and he promises to them he will so the next series i'm going to have to really sort of tackle this and say oi did you go to all of these places did you go to taiwan like you said you would did that happen sean and he's going to and i know he hasn't because i follow him on twitter so you know it will be we'll get back into the studio and he should she'll be shamed maybe we'll join forces and i'll actually we can actually go there and uh, do a big travel exactly podcast, really uh, sort of like you know underline the 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 rubbishness that is mr keevney so yeah no um that's on um so it's on bbc sounds if if you want to listen to it it's good i enjoy it it's fun yeah no i absolutely love it and what what a lovely job for you to do but it's quite it's quite interesting actually because a lot of your your general work your day-to-day work is very much rooted in in britain isn't it which you know the, the british museum um what was the thing you did with the landmarks, which I absolutely love? The oh up. yes, for UK TV. That 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 was um that was yesterday. That not not as in the channel. <laughs> so that was <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's very <laughs> happens all the time. Um, so that was um looking at the restoration of all these great landmarks like the Royal Albert Hall. Like um, where where else did we go to? I I just remember the Royal Albert Hall because that it's one the most memorable one. Well, not for the actual building, which is very interesting, you know, the way it was constructed, how rubbish it was when it was first, because basically either you freeze or you bake in that building because they gave it a glass roof and Victorian glass roofs, you know, they're, they're good at, you know, making greenhouses, but trying to have an orchestra in a greenhouse, not a great idea. But um, no, my favourite fact that we uncovered about that was it was the site of the first um, science convention. So you had like, in, like, the late 19th century so you had people um doing all the sci-fi stuff which is great and the sci-fi drink of choice was bovril <laughs> which is even better um and bovril's actually is a reference to a type of drink that they were drinking in this particular sci-fi book which is even better the sort of beef stock hot drink um but also it's the site of the first um uh mr olympia style competition well, it's sort and of like they, a strongman sort of thing. Exactly, yeah, but but more sort of aesthetic strongman. So they weren't oh, like doing lifts; they were just posing. And so, who has the most athletic body? You know, sort of um, bodybuilder competition. Ooh. And the person they got to judge this was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> of course, <laughs> the, exactly the writer of Sherlock Holmes. Who best to judge the aesthetic qualities of men's bodies than Sir Arthur Conan Doyle? Which you know, it's just a nice exactly. You know, he obviously understood about you know symmetry and form, and uh, which parts of the muscles that it was important to be able to see and identify. I assume I, I love that about history and the history of buildings. My first, my BA was in history of design 
design and the, the history of oh, buildings cool. and and social and objects and you know how society and uh, what was going on at the time is reflected in that and I love the fact that you go to the, find out the history of the Royal Albert Hall and come back with the history of Bovril that's oh, yeah. uh, particularly yeah. special um, it's also got on the outside of it, much to every paleontologist's chagrin, the guy who came up with the word dinosaur uh, is a guy called Richard Owen. And Richard Owens was very famous and incredibly respected during his lifetime. And he's on the side uh, pointing out a, a, a pterosaur, um, you know, because they've got these big murals around the side of the Albert Hall. And the thing is, everybody hated that man. So he was well respected. He was a member of the Royal Society. He was incredibly, you know, he helped put up things like um, the Crystal Palace dinosaurs, all of that sort of stuff. But everybody, even Charles Darwin, and you want to look at the nicest men in history, Charles Darwin is the cutest, sweetest thing you've ever met in your life. I mean, yes, he's divided the world with the theory of evolution, etc. But he also spent most of his time, like, playing musical instruments to worms to see if they could hear. Um, and I'm not even joking, he used to dig in his garden for like worms and he'd bring them out and he'd play them the bassoon at them. So Aww. as a sort of scientific expert, spent 30 years studying earthworms, was really important foundational work, found out they were important for the soil and the turning over. Anyway, the point is um, that Charles Darwin hated Richard Owens and he's like the only man Charles Darwin hated. It's and Bear in mind that Charles Darwin couldn't even get a knighthood during his time because his work was so controversial and he was, you know, completely ostracised by a large group of society. He didn't hate any of those people. He understood them. He thought they were great. Hated Richard Owens. So there you go. That is, that's all you need to know about Richard Owens. In, um, in fact, for the people of the, you know, the, the great white men of the time, and of course they were mainly men, um, they were actually quite harmless. But as you were, you were saying that, it was it was making me think that actually it's a funny time to be a um, uh, an, an historian. I really struggle with that. I know it's the Quebec way <laughs> of saying it, an historian. Um, because, uh, not just because it's a funny time in history, which is a funny time in history, I think we'll look back at this period of history with, with something. Um, but also, you know, the way that we're uh, teaching history has been changing and the way we're looking at the, those old figures, um, those once great figures has been changing, you know, sort of uh, decolonizing in history and, and you know, and, and seeing it through new eyes and all the things that we were taught, for example, like, the slave trade I mean didn't obviously you're an historian so you possibly knew this but I always thought that was an American thing it just really <laughs> made me think you know it's us like we are we were the Americans it's us and we kind of like we've sort of glossed over the fact that we were doing all that shit you know and now it, it must be a very strange time to, uh, and quite a fascinating time to be involved in history and, and teaching and educating history. Well yeah I mean I've written a book called uh, Blackbeard's Treasure which was basically Bloomsbury Education sort of came to me and said, we want a book for nine to 12 year olds. We know, you know, you're into, I did a show on Netflix called um, The Lost Pirate Kingdom, which got quite a lot of traction and that sort of thing. So they know I know about pirates. I'm like, kids love pirates. Can you do historically accurate pirates? So I've effectively written a book about the transatlantic slave trade, which is why there were pirates in the Caribbean, because basically we dumped a load of our sailors out there. We, we were at war with Spain, the Spanish War of Succession. After that ended, the British, they didn't, we didn't have a navy. We just had a load of merchant ships that we gave um, these sort of, um, um, what were they called, marks of, um, 
oh marks of intent or something i've got i've forgotten the name of them but anyway you've got given you know a merchant ship you're told you can go and attack um spanish ships and you get to keep their stuff and you know um, we'll pay you a little bit for that work so loads of merchant ships are down in the caribbean and then they didn't have enough money at the end of the war to get back home and pay all their crews so they dumped their crews off and then went back to britain and so the crews that were left they couldn't get any work because all the work was being done by the african slaves who were being imported and you know treated absolutely terribly i mean the thing is america when they imported their slaves was one of the few you know the colonies there actually tried to keep their slaves alive and they actually had which it sounds really callous to say but they had breeding programs right. so that they were making their own slaves and it's you know, absolutely disgusting and horrible. I don't want to, but this is what they were they doing. They weren't Whereas, just automatically killing them. Yeah, I mean, the Caribbean and even more Brazil, actually, they were just, it was a meat grinder. It was really horrific. Um, you can't, I mean, this is how horrific you want to think of the transatlantic slave trade is, is that slavery has been about for, you know, since the dawn of time in human civilization there's always been slavery of some sort it's sanctioned in almost every religious text everybody understands there'll be slaves in society some people like famous leaders were slaves at one point julius caesar famously got captured before he was a you know a big politician and he basically managed to free himself and recapture the pirates who enslaved him but you know slavery is just a fact of life and it wasn't until the transatlantic slave trade that everybody went oh my goodness this is abhorrence we have to put a stop to this it was it was that bad that everybody thought this makes us question the whole system itself not just the way we're doing it so I think it's um yeah so to write a kids book about that is really yes. fun you know because yeah, really i fun. i have to say if it, you know if you can't tell my by my voice and by my i am whiter than a toilet right <laughs> i'm really quite you know racially very very white indeed and so it's a really sort of difficult thing to sort of go because i want to tell the story of it and obviously i'm going to have loads of black characters because there were loads of black pirates you know black beards um his crew was you know 70 percent um, freed slaves. So, you know, it was a large amount of the pirates in the Caribbean were maroon slaves, were, you know, mer black merchants who, you know, couldn't get work. So they obviously became pirates too. So it was, yeah, it was interesting. So I have a very, you know, because things in Pirates of the Caribbean, you see black characters, but they're not the main ones. Whereas no. I have like my one of my main pirate characters, real ca character called Black Caesar, who was an African freed slave who did fight alongside Blackbeard and he's one of the main characters in the book and yeah it, it, I feel I feel it's very important to talk about these peoples and have them imagined but on the other hand my main character kind of has to be a white person otherwise that's going to be me telling somebody else's story in a way that mm, I'm not it's, it's difficult doing. to unpack I mean people talk about yeah. telling someone else's story but also as a as a, a writer and author and a creator you know often you do have to tell other people's stories. It's it's very difficult, isn't it? it is, I, I understand you've got that sort of sort of white guilt going on. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think we should, you know, we all, we all have that guilt. I mean, even, I think, you know, everybody who's 
brought up under Western, you know, eyes will have that guilt about something. You know, if you're brought up in the Western culture, there is stuff that you are semi-aware of and these prejudices that we all have. I mean, even as women, both you and I are slightly misogynistic in our outlook because we are, because of the society we've been brought up in. It doesn't mean that we're bad. It just means that we need to think about it when we start making assumptions about stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, and everyone's slightly racist or prejudiced or, you know. Oh, yeah, homophobic and yeah, everything. exactly. We've brought been so, brought up with it. Exactly. So, you know, it's a bit about forgiveness, but also about correcting yourself when you can. And the thing is, I'm pretty sure that I, I've done the best job I can with this book and I'm pretty sure that a few people are just going to be going um hang on is this right and I'll be like yeah I could have done that better but that's just the way of writing and you it can only amazing. do what you can do it's, well, it's, it's a really amazing. fun book I'll get it for my kids actually excellent um, yeah talking of being a funny time to uh to, to teach history and having to you know accurately represent things and not steal things and steal people's culture you actually also do a podcast for the British Museum which is another I very do. interesting time to be uh to be you know talking about you know the stuff that we have essentially I say we I'm half Indian Fijian which well, is a whole other there you thing go you get cause... you get a whole you get a whole you get let off on that <laughs> yeah. side then so yeah, that's, that's, that's from bad. indentured labor and you probably know all yeah. about indentured labor but not oh, a lot yeah. of people do because when the slave trades uh, ended we had to find we had to find uh, you know <laughs> other other forms of labor and then that was indentured labor and my family were brought uh, four generations ago from India to Fiji never to go back to their homeland like three other million Indians anyway well, loads loads of you know british indians you know we call them indians but they come from africa and they come from places like fiji mm -hmm. and racially yes you're indian but you actually are more familiar with the fijian culture the african culture you've created a different culture there and then you go to you know back to england and you're treated like somebody from pakistan when you've got absolutely yeah. so little in common anymore yes, very, it's like you know very very it's, confusing it's, it's like treating an English person as a Swede. It's not going to work. Yeah. You know, Mind you, I've had that a bit of an America, you know, when someone has said, oh, you're English. You know, I've got a friend who's in Switzerland. You're like, mm, interesting. Mm. We've probably met. But what I was going to say was that, yeah, the British Museum, you know, what yeah. what, what is in there still that we've raped and pillaged and should we <laughs> give it back, you know? Well, yes, is the answer. We should. There's a lot of objects in there that um, uh, should are, are not, you know, shouldn't be part of the collection. There are a lot of objects in there which um, I think, are, you know, are difficult. I mean, I think, you know, the obvious one is the Elgin marbles. Mm -hmm. I think that the trouble is you've got a huge debate around this because, for example, Elgin did buy those marbles, not for very much money and not <laughs> for enough money. Uh, but it, there is this sort of, you know, issue that with loads of objects in the British Museum. I mean, um, the guy... Um, Sone, John Sone, mm. who um, founded the museum. I mean, the, part of his wealth, the reason he was a collector and part of it was because he married a woman who had a plantation in the Caribbean. So he was a slave owner. And so you have, you know, the very foundations of the British Museum are based in this. And to be fair to the museum, they talk about this openly. They're very open with the fact that, you know, this is what we're doing. This is where it comes from. This is why it comes from this. You know, they're very good at... Um, talking about that and they're also very good at supporting other museums trying to um spread the objects around so they have a lot of international projects going on going ahead we were good at a lot of training Steph, you know I'll, I'll give us that you know we, we did do the, the the pillaging you know we did look after we, we valued the valuable the valuable items if that makes sense i mean we do we do i mean the conservation and the project okay. work like they've recently um uh 
that that do you remember the big explosion in Beirut? That yes. enormous, yeah, and it just blew up. Well, part of the damaged goods in that was um, in the um, university there. They have a Roman glass collection, and this was in a case made out of glass. It was about I think it was like ninety objects or something in this case. Roman glassware, very rare, very precious, and the case just fell from the wall and smashed. Yeah. And the British Museum went over afterwards. They sent people over. They got some students together. They started, you know, they trained people how to collect. So they basically gridded out the system, picked up every single bit of glass fragments, carefully sorted them all, brought them back to the British Museum. And not just, you know, it wasn't British Museum people working there. It was people from Beirut trained now in how to conserve this glass. And they pieced it all, you know, tiny tiny like shattered glass fragments pieced it all back together so we do we know they've resurrected these objects from being lost forever and so they they're passing on British, this is why i love the british museum it passes on knowledge not just for the visitors who go there and see everything but also they're training other cultures in in the methods of conservation in why we do things in certain ways they're expanding the science expanding the history they're doing more to sort of try and find the stories behind the objects why they were made how they were made and i think it's really interesting they're doing a big redesign of the museum at the moment and i think the the people i've spoken to there are really talking about how we get these objects from behind the glass into life how we talk about the cultures behind them, why they were created, what purposes they were created for, a bit more than, oh, that looks pretty. I like the style of that, you know, the way they've designed that. What's actually, why have they designed it in certain ways? So it's really hard. And it's also remember that, you know, when you've got sort of, you know, some objects from places like Iraq, where ISIS have been, you know, <laughs> you know, decimating and Terry destroying. Up, yeah. Exactly. You know, and also there are other places where it's very difficult to sort of give them back to because where you're giving them back to doesn't exist anymore. So you mm. have an object from Africa which belonged to a particular tribe, which now that tribe has been divided into two countries and it's, you know, centuries later. Both of those peoples have a right to that object. Sometimes only one of them wants it and that's very, you know, easy to do, but often they both have different rights. And then within that culture, you have the museums versus the governments versus the private owners. So it's incredibly difficult to find the rightful owner. You know, it's a case of you don't want to go soaring stuff in half and seeing who says no, actually, because <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's, mm. it's, I don't envy them the task. But I do think the museum is changing in its attitudes. I do think that there are people there, like, like me, there are objects I find difficult that are in there, but there are a lot of objects I completely understand why they're still there. And I really respect the work the museum's doing to sort of, you know, move it on. So it's it's a hard question. I'm sure yeah. I've said the wrong thing in the museum. No, I don't just think like, oh, and that's the a terrible way. <laughs> exactly. The museum will just go, well, no, actually, actually, because they're, they're quite precious about, you know, no, I, I love things it. I'm mentioning it specifically. I'm a massive but fan I, of I'm, all of our museums. I think we do really well. And okay, we have made some mistakes in the past, but you know, yeah. we, we are doing it. I mean, if you want to well. see and some real as well, real robbed stuff, you should go to um, <laughs> you should go to uh, Powers because that's amazing. The the like the the collection of um, of um, a mogul stuff there is incredible, and Isn't it there, literally sorry? is. Um, it's Powers in Wales. They have um, it's uh, Clive of India's. Um, 
there's a museum there and it's basically all the stuff that Clive of India literally looted. It's where we get the word loot from. Right. It's an Indian word. Uh, <laughs> and it's, well, it's stole the word. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, we say we, but this is private enterprise. Yeah, you know, exactly, this is, yeah. you know, was th East this India is the company, thing. Had a lot of, did a lot exactly. Of and and yeah. it's a real weird confusion that I think a lot of us have. We sort of think of this as a government going out and saying, we will have this land. We'll... And it really is just private enterprise going, mm. hi, we can get this land. Government, do you want in? Give us some money and we'll go do it for you. And it's this weird sort of like private public partnership mm. weirdness, which it isn't how you imagine it is. And it's, all, it's much it's... less organised and there's much less intent other than making money. It's, it's seeing things in the eyes of the period as well, isn't it? And I think that's kind of important. That's you know what? I do, I do think we're... Oh, actually, I was just about to tell you about one of my favourite museum exhibits in Fiji, actually. Have you been to Fiji at all? I have not been to Fiji. I, I suggest you go. I'll uh, tell Sean. Um, yep. But uh, Fiji is an incredible place and most people sort of know it for its tropical beaches. But one of my favourite things in the Fiji Museum in the capital, which is this tiny little wonderful museum with, you know, old boats cut from canoes that people used to get there and stuff about uh, Captain Cook, who, of course, uh, made his way, uh, uh, discovered, let's say, um, in inverted commas, the area. Um, but one of the wonderful things there um, are the soles of the Reverend Baker's shoes after he was boiled and eaten by natives. <laughs> there we go. I mean, they don't do that stuff anymore, you know, but uh, yeah, oh, you, interesting. Huh? not unless you're very, very unfortunate, I'm sure. And actually, <laughs> a few years ago, the descendants of Reverend Baker went, so I think they're from Southampton, they went over to Fiji and met the descendants of the people who ate um, the Reverend and they all got on like a house on fire. Maybe that's a bad, a bad analogy. I mean, that's, that's, that's healing, isn't it? That's yeah, that what we like. Healing. That is healing. I, I, you know what I feel? I feel we're talking about travel, are we? Are we kind of talking about how many we're talking... museums exactly. are travel and history is travel i mean i I've, I've since the lockdown you know most of my other than a few trips to france most of my stuff is I, i've just been traveling uk and everything else and going to you know see local stuff and there's so much local stuff around me i'm, I'm based in reading that mm. cultural <laughs> amazing place but um you know you've got you know silchester just down which is an old roman amphitheater that you get you know you could go to Rome and see the Colosseum. You could go to Silchester and uh, shout, "Are you not entertained?" From the centre of it, it's uh, it's uh, and it's free. It's just literally a field, and you just park up. You know, I don't. I think the parking's free. I don't even think they charge for it. And you can just go around. I'm really close to the White Horse as well, um, and also That's places like Avery. Oh yeah, yeah it's lovely. Yeah. It's lovely. But, nice. <laughs> but you know, all of the these White Horse on the hill. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, hmm. but all of these sort of ancient you know, sites, you know, quite close to Stonehenge as well. All of these places which really make you sort of, you know, realise what a ripple in time that we're living in. I mean, it's that sort of thing that I really enjoy about going, you know, it's why I like dinosaurs and those sort of museums as well, is because, you know, we are so, we're just a speck, speck of life um, on this huge, massive, you know, um, millions and millions of years, billions of years, in fact, long you know timeline of life on earth and we're just this tiny little blip. and i think seeing big sites seeing mountains and stuff like that it just makes you realize it a bit more so you obviously got a, a great passion for for history how did you get into this stuff i think honestly i'm just one of these 
I, I'm one of these people who gets special interests quite a lot and does deep diving quite a lot when I should be working on other things. So I actually, what all it was with me, with my, you know, history career is literally I was enjoyed doing stand up comedy and I was a good, I am still pretty good stand up comedian. And so, and doing that, I was talking about my special interest, which is history. And I came up with a show called The Z-List Deadlist, which you can still listen to. I'm not mm. making new episodes, but it's very good. It's very good um, about obscure people from history. And I was doing this as a live show. And simply the British Museum, one of, I think somebody's boyfriend listened to the show and they started <laughs> listening to it. And so then I started doing it at the British Museum. And at the same time, Radio 4 was getting interested in me because, you know, I could talk about pretty much any subject that they threw at me and get very excited about it, which is always good. And so I was doing little slots for making history, that sort of thing. So it, so it sort of built up that way. And um, because I'd done, you know, some writing in the past and that sort of thing, Bloomsbury sort of said to me, do you want to write a book about this particular radio story that I did about the jiu-jitsu suffragettes because suffragettes do did jiu-jitsu and because my friend Naomi Paxson told me that and when she told me that suffragettes were keen on their mixed martial arts I was like what why was I not told that in school yeah I need to know more about this starving themselves and getting run over by horses that was Mm. boring when I was a kid but they actually beat up police officers and actually caused them quite serious injuries yeah that's about that a little bit I saw that you you wrote a you wrote a book about it didn't you yeah yeah oh well I, I once again historical fiction so I thought how do you make you know, a kid interested in women's rights to vote, because let's face it, it is not very interesting. The uh, emancipation, like if you're a kid, you don't get to vote anyway. So, you know, so how do you make a kid care about it? Well, what if you make her mum a suffragette and her dad a policeman? Because the reason the policemen were so violent is because the evil Home Secretary, Winston Churchill, we're talking 1910 here, right? He basically told them, don't arrest the suffragettes, because if you arrest the suffragettes, they get really pontificate in prison. They write letters to all the papers and we get seen as the bad guys. So instead of arresting them, just beat them up so they won't protest. And this is what, and so you have events like Black Friday, where like hundreds of women would just beat around the head and sort of left to be sexually assaulted. I don't put the sexual assault in the book. It's for kids. But, you know, but I do do put Black Friday in. Exactly. I do put the violence in. And the way the women started to protect themselves, because they brought in things like the Cat and Mouse Act, which is when they would, you know, oh, you starve yourself in prison. What we'll do is we'll get to the point where you get really ill and you look like you're going to die. Then we'll let you go. Then you can fatten yourself up, be good again. And then once you're healthy enough to go back into prison, we'll rearrest you. And you can imagine what that does to a human body being constantly starved, yeah. let go, starved, let go. So it was called the cat and mouse act, like a cat playing with a with a mouse and just not letting it die. Mm-hmm. And um, so in order to avoid arrest, you know, they employed bodyguards. And at the time, mixed martial arts was incredibly um, popular. So at the turn of the century, a guy called Edward Barton Wright uh, started to, you know, he basically got people from Japan to come over. Um, uh, I'm just trying to think of one of their names off the top of my head. And I wasn't, I didn't revise for this, but brought people <laughs> um, from Japan over with, you know, different styles. So they did a mixture of um, cravat, which is um type of wrestling, uh, schwingen, which is type of um, club um, work. Um, they did... Um, uh they did jiu-jitsu and they did they did you know judo was just starting up so they were sort of doing this sort of thing and edward barton wright invented a um a mixed martial art called uh bartitsu which <laughs> sherlock holmes fans would go back to arthur conan doyle would know 
because um, that is what that is the move. I think it was Tominaki, the actual throw that Sherlock Holmes uses to get rid of Moriarty on right. the on the waterfall. So that that is so he actually quotes it. I think he gets it wrong. I think he calls it Baritsu, but it was called Baritsu. Um, uh, where, and, where did the name come from? I don't know. You have well, it, Edward Barton Wright. But... Edward Barton Wright is the Bart part, and Itsu is Jujitsu. So you call the right, Bartitsu, which is just, you know, and Bartitsu does sound amusing. It sounds like something oh that you God, do on a Saturday night. Oh, my God, it's a Soho, night. Soho exactly. bar. I want to go there, exactly. Bartitsu. Bartitsu. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, so the trouble is that in order for all this to work, it's, you know, Sherlock Holmes martial art, you need to have things around you like a cloak, like a long walking stick and all these things that a gentleman has, pocket watch even, that you can actually use in self-defence. And this woman... Um, called Edith Garrard, who was tiny. She was four, four foot 11. So, oh. you know, literally could walk under a table with a top hat on and be <laughs> fine, right? Really small. And she was like, well, I don't have these weapons, but I really love martial arts because why wouldn't she? And she started to sort of train and learn how to deal with, you know, using what women have. So we very small, lots of hip throws, lots of shoulder throws, lots of um, using um, um, Indian clubs, to sort of, you know, give space and that sort of thing, speed weapons and that sort of stuff. And she invented this sort of, you know, mixed martial arts style for the suffragettes. Um, she called it jujitsu because most of it was jujitsu, but some of it did involve strikes and everything else. So it was, um, so she started and she trained the suffragette bodyguard as well as doing things like she used to get pressed by doing sort of demos. So she'd go along to a theater and throw police officers on the ground and show that it was possible for, you know, a small woman to defeat a large man, which it is. Um, well, you have yeah, to be very right skilled and you know what yeah. you're doing. Mm. But I mean, and remember, mo all of the police officers were over six foot at this time because they're all ex-army mm. and they were all um, just trained to be violent and very bludgeony. And the good thing about being bludgeony is that you're not like doing sort of quick jab crosses and that sort of thing. They're sort of big hits and swings. So it's possible to actually get close to them. And once you're close to them, they're doomed. Uh, but it is, it's just surviving the first onslaught. But I you saw can do this, uh, this, this um, photographic exhibition online not so long ago. I can't remember where it was, but it was um, showing spot. It was, you know, comparing photographs of uh, of the suffragettes in, in location with the, the location that they were in now or something like that. But it, was ju it just sort of strikes me. And that's one thing I do love. And we, we you know, stayed mainly in this in this country for this episode, which is great. Well, actually, we've been to Fiji. We've been to Greece, kind of. Um, but I, mean, um, I am well travelled. I am well Yeah, well, actually, interested. that was going to be my next <laughs> question. But what I do love particularly about being here is being that close to history, you know, having these incredible museums and landmarks and buildings and even your Reading Amphitheatre, whatever that is. Don't tell me I'm not going to go there. Uh, no, I'm sure it's wonderful. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, but that was going to it just it really excites me and that's one thing apart from uh the weather you know I absolutely love about living here in the UK is that's history and and sense of time and place that you know that does surround us but that was going to be my my next question um yeah you're well traveled tell me about that well mainly as a child because mm. I'm I'm a uh it's very difficult to I'm four parents uh <laughs> six brothers and sisters but I am an only child right and my um so I've got half of my family Moroccan, half of my family Australian. And so um, when I was a kid, I think the first time I flew all the way to Sydney by myself, I was six. So, wow. yeah, that's so I've, I've been I've also when I was about 12, 
I flew from Australia and I went round to meet my dad in LA. So I crossed the international dateline. Now I had two Tuesdays in a row Fantastic. and I didn't fly back the other way. So I don't understand <laughs> yeah. how today, if it weren't for me, today would be the day after it is. It would be Thursday. I think you're Thursday. obviously living in the future. I'm, I'm living in, yeah, in the well, I'm living in the past. I'm living, living in the, the past, past yeah. by one day. And yeah. I had two Tuesdays. So ironic given that. your, you your passion for history. Exactly. <laughs> I am. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a day behind where I ought to be. But you, don't you tell flew anyone. to Australia on your own at six years old. Why? Yeah. Like, so you, there you were apologising for being white as a toilet in your own words. Um, yes. And obviously, it uh, doesn't change the, the colour of your skin. I mean, I, I'm not, quite I'm international. Not, Yes, but I, I am quite, I am, you know, I've, you know, I've been to mosque this year, you know, that's the, right. <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not a good Muslim, I, you know, <laughs> I will have a bacon sandwich with a hangover, but, um, you know, I, I, I'm that, there's that side of one side of the family. So basically, when I was a kid, parents split up. So my mum uh, fell in love and uh, has uh, a husband now, um, who is Scottish, but had a family in Australia. So his family were in Australia. So he used to go there. She used to go with him. And he and so my dad would have me for half the holidays and then would send me over. So I'd get on a plane. I wouldn't be allowed off the plane when you stop off. So it's, you either stop off in Hong Kong, mm. Bangkok or Singapore, but I was an unaccompanied minor. So you had forced to stay on the plane. And also at the age of six, I remember I was terrified of the plane toilets. The only part of air travel I couldn't stand was the plane toilet. So I didn't go to the loo. I think it was a 26 or 27 hour <laughs> flight. So apparently I was grey when I got off. Um, but, but everyone, was, there was, I don't know if it's a myth. I still don't know at my grand old age and as a travel professional that don't flush the loo if you're sitting on it because you will get stuck or sucked down it or something. That was the I whole think, well, myth. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you'll get sucked out the plane, but I do believe that they operate on a suction so you could damage yourself a little yeah. bit. I don't think you're going to get pulled out by your arse. I think you'll be fine. It'd be embarrassing in the Darwin Awards, you know, nicely yeah. tied into Darwin. But uh, yeah. Uh, but, so um, yeah, six years old. I mean, I've got a seven-year-old right now. He's never been to the corner shop on his own, let alone, you know, oh, on bless. a plane to Australia. I think I think it was quite stressful for my parents, but on the other hand, it was less stressful than travelling with me to get <laughs> yes. there. So oh God, I, I think it was, you know, you put your trust in, I think it was Qantas, but you know, you just you just do. It was um, it was it was a lot. I, I used to travel quite a lot because I the, the the you know the going around the world the other way was by myself as well. So going from wow. you know Sydney over to LA that was that was uh, a single flight as well. So so what was happening when you got to Australia at age six? No, I mean not. I was going to say yeah. literally like you they, you didn't boom, boom. not getting off the plane, but party what, you know, time. Rock... Yeah, exactly. It was yeah. well, no. I mean they they were there at the airport. They didn't mm. say Izzy, can you just rent yourself a car? That didn't happen. <laughs> they were they were like oh hello. There you are, child. Well done. You made it. Uh, so so um, I went to so I had family in Brisbane. Actually, I have family for those Australians listening who who understand this. I have family in Gympie. That is very <laughs> that is, you know, the Castle Main 4X on the train, the yeah. train on the front that yeah. goes to Gympie. Right. And that's that is that is the most famous thing about Gympie. That sounds so amazing. Is the routes it, in and out of it are really good. It's, <laughs> it's it's a beautiful place, but it is quite um quiet so basically my stepfather had a bit of work in melbourne and brisbane so i went to school there for a little bit i used to have an australian accent oh. um and because my parents are very well traveled i had I, I stayed for a long time in hong kong once and i think i you know when you're a kid you don't really know and i think it was a couple of weeks 
maybe something like that. But I definitely had to go to school with my a girl called Amber for a couple of days, and that was all in Cantonese, so I was completely lost. I, first time I saw Star Wars, I was in Hong Kong, and I watched Star Wars on a video, and it was in Mandarin with Cantonese subtitles. Did it make so, any sense? It made perfect sense. Yeah, it's exactly, a very well yeah. cut film. I yeah. understood exactly what was going on. I understood who was good, who was bad, just by the music and the intonation. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, it was it was a strange sort of childhood. So I spent a lot of it, you know, there. Obviously, um, you know, it, it comes from you know a very privileged childhood. You know, you can't really sort of say I got to feel sorry for me. You know, yeah, my childhood was so sad. The air miles, the constant <laughs> travel. Um, but I did get to see a lot of the world. So I got to see places like Bali and Thailand. And um, it it was incredible just because if you're going all the way to Australia to see your siblings, you're going to stop mm. off in these places because it doesn't cost much more. And you get to see these you know amazing places. And my parents are very social people. So they all had friends there. We hardly ever stayed in hotels and stuff. So it was always, a, you know, an exciting you know, uh, experience just That's to so meet. glamorous and exciting, you know, particularly what most of us were doing in primary school. Well, exactly. I remember being sat in Bali on the toilet. When I say sat on the toilet, hovering. Uh, and the and this is this is one. So, like, oh, what do you remember about Bali? I went to see like beautiful puppet shows, and I saw the beautiful beaches, and we had coconuts. You know, drinking straight out of coconuts, and we went to these amazing temples. We had the monkeys that climbed at you in order to get the you know the peanuts that you bought for them, and that sort of thing. All of that. Now, the main memory I have of it was um, being squatting on this toilet <laughs> and in under fluorescent lights with bad diarrhea because obviously you do. Mm. And as I was, you know, unable to move. A dead bat moved across the floor, being carried by ants in front oh. of me. And there was nothing I could do. And it's just the so the decomposed dead bat being moved in front of me by all these bugs whilst I'm not feeling very well. Uh was that was that's my, you know, abiding memory of Bali. It's but a good job there's no trip advisor back in those days, because it would make exactly. a great review. <laughs> Fortunately, my spelling wasn't very good back then, so it wouldn't have made much sense. <laughs> But it is it that is must have really shaped of... you. You know, that's given you such a, a an independence early on. But you haven't explained um, the the, the uh, Moroccan, and in fact, going to the the mosque as well. But you haven't explained the Moroccan side of it. Oh, the Moroccan side. My my my. Uh, I have uh, my mother on my father's side, as it were. So my stepmother is um, uh, she's Moroccan, born in Morocco, came over when she was, I think, fourteen. Um, lived in Trowbridge. And then moved to London, got married at 16, had her first kid at 16. So she's, you know, much younger than my mother for that reason. Um, and she uh, divorced, um, fell in love with my dad. They've been sort of living together, finally got married just after the um, pandemic. So I can now oh, officially okay. say, exactly, it was very romantic. It was yeah. very sweet. Uh, and um, so now they're officially married. So I get, I get to basically claim my uh, siblings as mine now they can't deny me oh, as the so you know uncle white lady who's there. <laughs> <laughs> don't apologize but, um, for no, yourself you're okay Izzy you're all right you know you're I am, I'm, I, I, I'm fabulous and... I'm fabulous yes, I am exactly. uh, but I, I am I am I am uh, I do stand out because you know Moroccans and me because I'm six foot as well right. so there's no hiding <sighs> You know, there's no sort of get in line with the other children and don't try and yeah, I am I'm big. Where so, is the uh, where have you felt most out of your out of place in the world or standing ooh, when have you stood out most? That is interesting. To be honest, where you're from, to Brighton. Mm. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I used to live in Brighton for a bit when I was a kid. Um, so they, my mum lived in Brighton and I used to travel down at the weekends and I had bright white, I bleach it now, but when I was a kid, I had bright white hair and Japanese tourists would find me and photograph me. You know, the way that people yeah. photograph other people's children. Look at the way these strange foreigners live and look how, look how foreign they look. And so I was always sort of brought out, you know, because of bright white hair, dark eyebrows, dark eyes, sort of looking really strange and yeah japanese people used to take my photo a lot i might i might have my own dedicated website out there i really might but every time i went down to brighton beach i would have my photo taken by strangers um presumably not in a bad way i don't know <laughs> if people would get away with that now but it was the 90s so nobody cared we do um, it don't we to like you know african kids well, exactly fields exactly. or indian kids living you know in yes living living the Mumbai sort of slums and... yes exactly yeah. instagram life and you're just like that's not great <laughs> oh, <laughs> they're doing the same i always wonder do you ever wonder like how many people's photographs you're in and i was wondering if it'd be possible to do like a to search all the computers in the world for face ID and see like how many you not just people are taking photos and touching your hair and stuff being a tall blonde person but um you know in the background at the Coliseum yeah. or in whatever that place is in Reading and um you know <laughs> it's not just a you it's usually just you and a squirrel to be fair <laughs> yeah. um it's not it's not it's not crowded there but um yeah I, I think AI was going to be able to do that because like my photos now automatically find my friends faces and mm. tags them and it's really freaky when it does that but I'm sure that that's coming because I mean I believe the Chinese government do that already with their citizens they have face recognition technology and everything so they can track people and and find them quite easily um not less sinister than that maybe but uh that's that's yeah, just to of... find you in your in your family in people's family photos that's what i was thinking yes, but I suppose it obviously exactly. it's got more useful uses than that to the nefarious I sp well yeah by uh, useful useful for regimes um yes. but yeah no it's uh it's it, it's interesting i think we're you know i'll tell you what we're in a hell of a lot more than we would have been a hundred years ago so mm. You know, there's going to be a lot more photos of us probably, you know, in the last day or two than there would have been in an, our entire lifetimes 100 years ago. So. And it, fix, it affects your memories as well, doesn't it? Because I've got memories of childhood that, you know, we didn't take that many photos, but that are uh, aligned to and intertwined with those photos. And my kids have photos, you know, a good 30 or 40 every day, sometimes every hour when they were babies. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, it's. It, I wonder how it's going to affect our memories and actually bringing it back to what we've been talking about a little bit, the memories of history, because, of course, everything is captured now. Um, and uh, I, I was going to say less easy to edit, but of course, it's easy. It's still easy to edit and see it through the eyes of who who is recording it, I guess. I mean, that's that's the trouble with any sort of photo is you're looking at it through the people who are thinking what's you know it's the thing with any bit of history any written history it's what people think is, is important is what gets preserved and what gets passed down which is, which is why we've got loads of white white pirates <laughs> yeah well exactly it's why we've got loads i mean there were loads of white pirates yeah, yeah, too so, yeah. but mm. but you know what i mean it's it's, a it's case why we of, don't have any black ones <laughs> yeah it was why the black ones names aren't remembered pretty much all the black pirates and there's several of them called black caesar Right. Um, and they were all different pirates over different periods, but you know, their their name is Caesar, so they got called Black Caesar because they are black, and that's a fun name, you know. And yeah, and they don't have their records, you know, as deeply explored because they're not seen as important. Um, which is the same with almost all the women yeah. in history. <laughs> it's just like all the women. Um, yeah, well, like Richard Owens, who I was talking about with the dinosaurs, he came up with the word dinosaur. 
but he ripped off a load of research by a guy called Hilary Mantel, who was amazing. He was the guy who discovered the iguanodon and he worked out, you know, the ones with the thumb spikes and, and mm. he found the, and the, the story is he found these teeth and he realized that these teeth look like giant iguana teeth, but he didn't find those teeth. His wife, Mary found those Mary, teeth. Mary, down on, and, um, in Dorset, it, isn't it? Mary, what's yeah, name? Uh, yeah, no, no, you're thinking Mary Anning. But oh, I assume Mary. Different, right, yeah, okay. Different Sorry, Mary, different Mary, but, uh, yeah. common name but, at the time. Lots of lots of women in paleontology, mm-hmm. you know, some of them are called Mary. But uh, but yeah, but um, she she found the teeth. She was the one who gave them to him. Says, I think these look interesting. You know, <laughs> all of these people are in these stories who just don't get mentioned because mm-hmm. the story has to be about the man and about the because that's the narrative that Victorian women were told is you have to you know you read these biographies of men in Victorian years they don't mention having a family they don't mention their children or their mm. wives or anything like that because that wasn't the story they wanted to present you know what they yeah. present is this yeah, mm. it's the same with the Arcadian kings you know it's the same with you know it, when you have a society which is very you know this is you know the example and this is the great people from history it's a real sort of, it's the way we teach kids now as well in Key Stage 1 and 2. We sort of say, hey, it's this person from history. You could be like that person from history. You can change the world. But ultimately, none of these individuals change the world. The systems that they grow up in, that they kind of are spawned from, that cause them to be, are the things that change the world. And they are just sort of the label that's put on it. Yeah. And, you know, it's like saying, well, Trump changed the world. And it's like, did he? <laughs> did or he? is that uh, is that something else? It's like saying Farage calls Brexit. You're just like, did he? Or is mm. that something else? You know, there's 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 bigger sort of underlying currents going on. I'm, I'm one of the sort of, you know, underlying people. But on the other hand, it's a great, I think it's so much easier for the human brain to understand an individual and their motives. And it's so much more interesting for us because we are quite introspective and we quite like a good story about a person. And we like that, that sort of minutiae of decisions and why they did that and would I have done different? Um, and I think it's that which grabs us, which is why we follow these big people. And if you've got a society which favours white men, you can't say these white men didn't do anything because they did and they Mm -hmm. are interesting it's just that it's nice to see to hear why they were there and the other stories that you know were around them and surrounding them absolutely there were other interesting people around at the same time exactly (laughs) and it'll be nice going forward to have everyone talked about and all views at the table if we can exactly and it is or or a more variety a greater variety I mean, there's there's a lot to be ashamed about about being British, but do remember that you know it was the British people, and when I say people, the rich white men who were landowning class who voted to say to end the slave trade. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And the first country, the first peoples in history ever to say let's do that, and then to put money behind it, so that they went out and they stopped the trade happening. Literally, men you know, forts against, you know, people trying to trade slaves, sunk ships, died in the process of trying to yeah. do it. So I think I think there's there's that to be slightly proud of too. Mm. Uh, you know, in, I feel in that like quoting sense. Stevie Wonder actually, which will um which is not Stevie Wonder. It's Stevie, it's really awful, which will bring me up nicely to my last question actually. But um it was uh, a Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney, wasn't it, that did Evan Ebony and Ivory, but I'm thinking uh, people are the same wherever you guys are. It was really bad. It was kind of, I'm not going to sing. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to ask you my you last should, question. You should definitely sing. You should, ask, you should um, sing now. 
Again, I will, I will. In my head, I am singing. And I hope you are too. I'm going to ask you my last question because it ties in really nicely, actually, because my last question is always about music. And I don't know, I think, uh, I don't know if Sean Keaveney kind of did this when he started his own travel, but not travel. Um, I adore travel and I'm a travel specialising journalist, um, but my first love is music. And if I was doing anything, it'd be Desert Island Discs. They won't, they're not going to allow me to do that. So I invented this instead. But I always think that music and travel go very much hand in hand. And if I had to ask you to name one song that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel what is that song and what were you doing what comes to mind oh my goodness um the to be honest and this sounds oh my god this sounds weird it was the cruel intention soundtrack <laughs> okay and the cruel intention my dad decided because he's He's the sort of man who has a lot of friends in Italy. So we drove down from London down to Italy, which is a long drive. And we had three albums on this. We had the Cruel Intention soundtrack. We had OK Computer by Radiohead. Yeah. It's the only things that him and I could agree on. And I think we had Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. Nice. And so forever, these three albums are completely ingrained in my brain with that sort of Italian countryside which you know and just looking out the window going oh, i'm 14 and this is awful you know i'm on my holiday with my dad yeah oh my exactly God. rolling your eyes <laughs> nothing to do he keeps like bringing me around these weird italian and i i can only say ciao that's it i can't i can count up to 10 and that's oh my god and i have to speak to all the, and there's these boys and it's oh so I, I was i was sort of doing my sulky teenager thing and we were driving through but also like every time i see a renaissance painting because all of the Renaissance painters are inspired by Italy. So all of these things, we get Jesus walking through what you think of as like, you know, um, Nazareth and that sort of thing. Nazareth looks like Italy because that's the, the countryside that all these painters were painting because they were in Italy. And so I always think of, you know, when I see religious things, I always think of stuff like Dark Side of the Moon and, you know, that's very atmospheric. Because, you know, as, because as we record, record this, Dave Gilmore is like about two minutes down the road. Well, if he's in his oh, really? side house, yeah, yeah, I could That's not cool. and tell him. That's pretty cool. What is on you the could... Cool Intentions soundtrack, by the way? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to remember. It is. Uh, uh, there's one song, and I, I don't ask me to name list the sounds. It's or literally it. there's one song. Okay, um, she's an ball She is a rolling <laughs> faster than a white wall. Got an avalanche track in a snowball she's losing all the leeches I'm like dancing. a stone wall that, there you go there's that one there's um oh um secretly by skunk nancy oh yeah uh, which is lovely mm. uh, i like that one there's um coffee and tv i think by blur nice um, good there's a few there's a really you know it's a it's a, it's a good one actually yeah you think this is going to be awful but actually um there's 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 quite a lot of good stuff and actually cruel intentions is quite a fun film yeah, as well. and you and think a bit of, of it as just angst like as well, you know, especially very teenage angst, but very very short sort of experience, and it's in its <laughs> sort of good and bad, and playing with morality. It's very mm, and also just full of rich, you know, annoying teenagers, which you know. I was probably one of them, but not I love like that. A, I love a rich, annoying teenager. Yeah. Totally aspired to be one of those. Never got to be. I'm sure it was annoying and a teenager, yeah. but uh, yeah, I never I never got to the. I never got to the stage where I actually had any sort of branded clothes or jewellery. However, Seriously? I did. No, no, that's not true. I had a pair of Nikes. I had a pair of Nike trainers. <laughs> but uh, I did I did go to a nice, you know, a public school. And um, I did 
you know, hang around with those people. And, and when I say those people, they were lovely and I used to Yeah, of course, people are people. There is good and bad yes. in everyone. Exactly. Is, that, um, is that it? It is Ebony <laughs> Nabry. Anyway, I don't know. Izzy, thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. No it's really, really nice to talk to you. Lovely to talk to you too. And do um, Your Place or Mine with Sean Keaveney on BBC Sounds. Boom. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure all my listeners love love it already. Absolutely. We're all big six music fans, me and my friends. As well. Oh, well, there we go. Exactly. Yeah. And you can't, you can't, you know, think of that without Sean. So... Thank you so much, Izzy, and to all of you for gracing us with your ears. If you enjoy what we do, please do go give us a nice review online somewhere and subscribe on an app so you get every episode sent to your handy little phony device or whatever you listen on. Thank you, and we'll be back very soon. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.